Whether you keep them in your home or love to see them in theirs, these are the creatures that bring us all together. Reptiles. reptiles. We're going to be delving into the experiences of reptile lovers from around the block and around the world. This is the Reptile Talk Podcast. Boom! What is up, everybody? This is Jeremy Turgeon from Brassman Reptiles. And I'm Rob, and I'm creeping a reel. What, Rob, what did you do to your lighting situation? Because something's changed from... Yeah, <laughs> I um, I have this, like, really bright strip light, and I was like, it was a little too dark in here, and I was like, I wonder if I throw this strip light, face it, like, away from me, if that'll be enough. And I think that it just did what Dude, I needed it to do. It looks, it looks great. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. It looks great. Uh, all right, done. so we're we're in the midst of a flurry of episodes. So if you're watching on YouTube, you're getting a bunch of reptile talk <laughs> right now. And uh, if you're one of our audio only listeners, then you're going to hear this in a couple weeks. And uh, if you can't wait a couple of weeks to hear from from Josh Ortiz, then get your ass over to YouTube uh, or the rep at the Reptile Talk podcast. Hit that subscribe button and the notification bell. And bam, there's a cameo from Teddy the dog behind me. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, super stoked tonight, as well as every night's episode is brought to you by Black Box Cages. Shout out to Black Box Cages. And now you can use code Reptile Talk in the checkout and save a little bit off the top of your cage order. So go get some cages, guys, yeah. and uh, and save a little bit of money because everybody wants to save money right now. That's where it's at, man. That is it. Dude, I'm super stoked. I'm not going to ask you how you're doing because we talked about that yesterday. But how was your day, Rob? Uh, it was okay. It was actually not horrendously cold during the majority of today while i was outside so very nice that was that was nice and then tomorrow is my birthday so i'm gonna be going herping a little bit tomorrow it's gonna be 51 degrees so i'm not expecting to see anything maybe i'll see some salamanders or something salamanders yeah that's okay i like salamanders too so i'm gonna go out and then uh saturday is the greenville show so i think that i might go check that out because they have venomous there and i just want to stare at it all Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I I contemplated making that trip, but it is it's a haul, man. It's it's, it's I think it's like an hour and twenty for me, or like over an hour for me. I'm like ah, yeah. I drive an hour there and an hour back, but I do want to see venomous snakes in person. Yep, yeah. yep. That's I'll fair. Do I'll do it. I'm gonna say it's for my birthday and then treat. Myself. Boom. There you go. <laughs> do it. Do it and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, heck yeah, dude. I'm but, here for it. Are, how are you doing? How is your I'm day? I'm doing good, man. My day, my day has been chaotic. I've been on the go from uh, I don't even remember when in the hell I woke up. Eight thirty to something this morning. Uh, mm-hmm. Through to now, still going. We're gonna record these episodes, and then I still got more work to do. So, yep. uh, just keep on going. It never ends, dude. It Get never ready. ends. Uh, I wish I could be like Josh and just put all my animals in uh, boxes to, to go to sleep for the winter. <laughs> I don't so, know if that's all his animals, but it's a decent. It's animal. a good majority for what we just <laughs> saw before we started. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's get the man in here. The myth, the legend. Hello, Mister Josh. Hey, baby, how you doing? Good. I'm doing good. Oh, he said it great. He, he did say it. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna send you a birthday man. gift, okay? 
Oh. Oh. Oh God. Is it a selfie? <laughs> I want you to be surprised. You're gonna be shocked. <laughs> this could be good or bad, guys. It could shocked is. <laughs> it could be good or bad. <laughs> oh, good times. Good times. <laughs> so, Josh, how are you doing today? Good. Busy. Really busy. We're actually building another. Jeremy, you've been here. We have a few buildings here. We're actually yep. putting up another building right next Ooh. to one of our barns. So that's really exciting. But literally, like, I stopped, like, maybe 15 minutes before this podcast. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I got to go on the podcast now. But we're building another building because we're going to have more veranda cages, like really large cages. Ooh. Heck and yeah. so we're expanding doing that because our laces are getting big. Our spencers are getting big. So oh. basically we have a lot of stuff to be raised up that basically are outgrowing their previous in- enclosures. So, and they have oh. indoor outdoor runs too. So. Yes, dude. I'm stoked to see that. Yeah. We're pretty excited about that, but we have a lot going on here. We're going to add more emus. We got emu eggs here. We have tons and Did tons you get of eggs. Stuff. Yeah. We have emu eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. Usually, dude. They lay anywhere from like five to 20 eggs. And I think we're up to like a dozen eggs or so from one female. So it's pretty exciting. Damn. Yeah. It's not Wait, a, emu podcast, a lot of emu. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty interesting too, because everyone was like, just take the eggs. The male's going to leave you alone. It's not a big deal. I wanted oh. to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. See, Josh, this is content the world needs to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to post it. I took a video because when they um, when they make their facial expression, they're like grimacing. Like you can see their brows go down and everything. And oh, then the male hisses man. at you. And they're smart. It looks like a raptor. That's actually what they designed the, the raptors after in Jurassic Park. After like emus running and stuff like that. So. That's terrifying. Dang. I'm not going to lie. That's terrifying. To me, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the only one that goes in there with them. They're about my height now. They're pretty tall. Dude. Sheesh. Yeah, Josh. Josh is closer to being one of the actual tallest reptile keepers in the industry. If you yes. if you miss uh, the last joke <laughs> from the previous the last, episode, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think gosh. Jason Hood has me beat, though. I think so. He is so yeah, tall. He is a tall man. <laughs> cool. So tall. Yeah. Dude. So so I, I when I when you're like I'm super busy right now. I was like. But every there's so much it's brewmating right now. It's it's this is supposed to be when it's less busy, but with with expansions and everything, you still got a lot a lot of stuff still going on. Yeah, well, the main thing that stays up is most of our veranids mm-hmm. because I mean, you guys know we have. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you guys had specific questions, so you guys can interrupt me. But we have the Salvatore, the Cumini, the Semarensis, mm-hmm. Mertens, Lace, Spencers, Spinulosis. We have a few different species of dwarf monitors. Um. And that's just off the top of my head. We have, you know, quite a few species here. We have the quince monitors. So, I mean, some of my monitors um, do get cooler. They do brumate. So, um, so that basically the spencers and the lace, they, they cool down. But yeah. besides the spencers and the lace, I mean, I have a few species that could tolerate cooler temperatures. Like Mertens, for example, are reasonably cold tolerant, but they do not brumate. Um, mm. And then you also have, I have some albigularis. And I don't have the Cape Banded form, though, of white throat. So those are the only ones that truly brewmate, to my knowledge. So anyways, we do have a lot of stuff to keep us busy. So we probably work maybe half as much in the winter in terms of animal care. But that's when we try to expand infrastructure in the winter. So, Hell yeah. Heck yeah, dude. Dude, you said you got spinulosis? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love those monitors. 
I'm pretty sure I have four females, though. I'm almost positive. Ah, uh, yeah. that's a little frustrating. Yeah, and I got them when they were tiny babies because I don't know about for you guys, but for me, usually when I raise something up when it's quite young and raise it under my conditions, I get the best results. Mm-hmm. So I got these guys as tiny babies, and I got four of them thinking that I should have at least one male and one female. And I'm, I'm pretty confident um, that they're all female. Because you can actually ultrasound them with a, with a standard ultrasound that we use in the industry. The mm-hmm. depth works out well. And two of them are definitely female because they have follicles. And the other two that are smaller, when I ultrasounded them, I didn't see follicles. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty confident they're likely females as well. So. Mm, we'll see what happens. Then. Dude, those are such a cool species and there's not a whole lot of people working with them like i think ryan mcveigh has got some but i don't mm-hmm. i don't know anyone else who's really there's someone breeding them i don't know offhand but i know of at least of one person currently breeding them but i mean right now i'm trying to uh, transition to medium-sized species and smaller species there's nothing wrong with the big species but for me i mean we, we covered this before for me the larger the lizard is the less of it i usually breed yeah. I want to make yeah. sure that people could like responsibly house them and mm-hmm. that there's, you know, good homes for them and everything like that. And it, it's tough when you have a large, anything, right. A large dog is tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so a large rep, a large lizard or a large snake is more challenging. So I do produce larger lizards, but once it gets like, like tegus to me kind of bleed into that large zone. So usually mm-hmm. my limit is around tegu size or smaller. Um, so that's why I'm exploring some of the smaller stuff. Quince. I want to get peach droats. I've been really into the roughnecks recently. Ooh, uh, yeah. monitors. Anything that's like around the three, four foot range. And plus also I just want um, some, some, some change. So a little bit more variety here. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, we've had success with the Salvatore, the Semarensis, the Mertens, the Kamenai, all that stuff. And I really enjoy those species and we could talk more about them. But sometimes you just kind of want to change it up and do something different, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about the Australian water dragons though? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are a perfect size. And here, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. So I had so much trouble breeding Australian water dragon for years, mm-hmm. years, years, years. Mm-hmm. And um, because I had those guys for, before they started regularly producing for me, I would say at least five years, right? One issue I had was I had a bunch of females and a single male, right? Mm-hmm. So that was one problem. Another problem I had is I wasn't getting them cold enough. Um, because people hear about them getting cold. I'm sure you guys know that they brew made, right? Um, so they occur like in, um, New South Wales, Victoria, they occur where it gets really, really cold. And basically I I would get nervous, right? So if they would get get below like 50 odd degrees, I would, I would pull them in. And that was the worst mistake I could have made. They really Really? need those Mm. nights where it's in the thirties, where it's in the forties. They, they need that. Jeez. Yeah. See, that, to me, I'm like, I'm, I think water dragon, I, my mind just goes to the uh, the Asian one with the green water dragons, mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. like, 30 degrees, oh my god, it's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> but they're completely different, so, and oh my god. So, the key you found is just getting them, that much, getting them colder to get them to be able to reproduce for you. Yeah, basically. Um, if you guys hear a railroad in the background, part of the property borders like an old like freight railroad and uh you guys might hear if you do just let me know anyways um that's how josh gets his animals in just on train you know <laughs> it's actually pretty cool because we have like probably like an acre or two of swamp because you know we have we're fortunate enough to have a decent amount of land here so mm-hmm. there's an acre or two of swamp bordering near the um 
near the railroad. So there's a lot of good herping there. I see cotton mouths, I see all kinds of stuff. But um, anyway, yeah. so in terms of the Australian water dragon, they do need to get really cold. Um, when they when it gets down to 30s, 40s, you really need to um, to leave them out. You can't get nervous and give them supplemental heat. You can't get nervous and pull them inside. Um, because whenever I did that, my fertility was, was pretty low. I would get a lot of infertile eggs, um, you know, one or two good eggs per clutch. And um, I didn't have good success until I left them out. I mean, last night it was in the 20s here. We had a really strong cold front. It was in the yeah. 20s. They stayed outside. So yeah, basically what I have for them is an yeah. insulated cooler. That's Jimmy's <laughs> face. An insulated cooler. <laughs> Um, that's within their enclosure, right? So mm-hmm. there, so the, and I cover it with plastic. So they have a south-facing enclosure, so it gets the sun during the day. I put a lot of um, decor in there that absorbs a lot of heat, so it slowly dissipates it at night. So like you know, different types of rocks, even even the type of substrate I use absorbs all that heat. I put things in there that decompose to bring up the heat as well. And within that enclosure, that six by six enclosure, they have a cooler. So the cooler obviously doesn't get as cold as it is outside, right? So it has um has a barrier there, and they stay out. If it's twenty some twenty some odd degrees, they stay out. I even had in the temperature in the teens last year. I think got to like 17, 18 degrees. Uh-huh. They were outside. Wow! Um, you really have to leave them. I mean, the important thing, the caveat to that is they're not exposed to the wind. They're not exposed yeah. to those elements, right? Right, right. Because right. in the wild, it's not as if they're going to say, "Oh." It's 35 degrees. Let me just sit on this branch in the open and yeah. just the wind all over me. Let me get rained on. I'm going to be perfect, right? Yeah. So they're finding these nooks and crannies, and they're finding warmer microclimates where they're protected um, from a lot of moisture. They're protected from wind. They're, ex- they're protected from all the extremes. And that's all I provide in their enclosure. You give them a ton of options, and particularly options where they could be protected from the elements, and you just let them be. And then you'll get good production. At least that's my experience. I can't speak of any other anyone else's experience, but that's what worked really well for me. We were fortunate. We got you know a few dozen eggs this year, and mm-hmm. um, and they all hatched out. So and their hatch rate is extremely high. I literally didn't lose. If an egg didn't go bad within the first week, it hatched. It hatched. That's so unless awesome. it had like a significant issue from the start, they, mm-hmm. those eggs hatch. They're super. They're super super hardy eggs. So, and are, what temp are you incubating them at? Okay, that's a good question. So usually, if you incubate them between 78 and 82, you get males, right? Oh, okay. um, for me, I was actually, because last year I incubated for males, and I actually have males that are raised up from last year and the year before. Oh. So this year, I incubated them at my monitoring um, incubator. So it was at 86 degrees. So I mm-hmm. should get most, if not all, females in theory. But you know how that works, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So I've incubated crocodilians at female temperatures and got males and vice versa. The same thing with some of my tortoises we breed here. I've incubated them because a lot of them are temp-sexed uh, for males and got females and vice versa. But in theory, I should get mostly females. Mm. I think it's interesting, too, because like um, when it comes to the Australian water dragons, a lot of people I find when I talk about them, they're like, I just want a male. I just want because they got that they're, they're bulky. They got the nice coloration on like or they can have the nice coloration on them and stuff. And and I find that the people I know who like really before they were even like, you know, readily available at all before there was anyone really breeding them. The people I know who tried to get them always ended up with females and they were always frustrated because they're like, I just want like a big bulky display male that's just like, you know, hefty and and, and they're, they just look so cool. Well, you know what it is because the temp range for the males is so 
is so minute. It's only like around like high 70s to very low 80s. You could mm. actually incubate them below 78 degrees and within reason they'll hatch, right? Wow. And yeah. if you go above um, 82 degrees within reason, some people incubate them like at 90 degrees and they'll hatch. But those are ranges for yeah. females, right? Yeah. So the range for a male is, is so small. Therefore, most of the ones that you see out there are female. And that's the problem I had too. But if you think about it, that's actually advantageous for them too, because in the yeah, wild, they need way that. more females than males, uh -huh. right? True. So that's, that's so one I think cool that's the year. I mean, they're extremely hardy animals, really interesting. Oh, oh. Dude, that's awesome. Heck yeah, dude. That's yeah, so, so cool. basically what my plan is with that, I know a couple breeders are Australian water dragons, and I'm actually going to, uh, switch animals just so I have kind of like new blood because we have a few dozen mm -hmm. animals here and I microchip all my animals here. Um, and then basically I'm going to get the opposite sex for my breeding groups. Um, so as I knew, do know a few people in Florida that are breeding them and actually in Alabama as well, because I'm sure you guys know Bert Langerworth was Bert. based out there in Montalvo. Yep, yep, yep. So there's actually uh, two or three breeders around there that breed them on a small scale. And um, so I've traded animals with them. So, th so that's the plan with those guys. But to me, I think they make, you know, the perfect pet because they're, they're a bit bigger than like a bearded dragon, um, maybe a little bit or along the lines of like a blue tongue size, but that's that perfect pet size for people, right? Uh -huh. That's true. And they're extremely hardy. They could take really low temperatures. They could take really high temperatures. Um, they could be a, a little bit flighty when they're little, but I, I've never had one even open its mouth to me, uh -huh. a baby, an adult and anything. Um, so they could tame down extremely well and um, they're, they're technically omnivores. Even though I feed mine um, primarily insects, I'll feed them roaches and I'll feed them um, crickets and, and things like that. I also feed them certain types of sweet fruit like blueberries and I'll feed uh -huh. them bananas. Um, so they're, they're omnivores, so they have a varied diet. But whenever you have an animal that's like a perfect size, varied diet, pretty good temperament, and it's just really pretty and unique, uh -huh. I mean, that's, that's a great pet there, right? Yeah, exactly. Sure. Exactly. And I, I think that the reason why they're not like more popular is just because a lot of people don't see them you know they see the like asian water mars or like bearded dragons are getting pushed so heavy and crested geckos are getting pushed so heavy that people just don't know that there's this like really awesome medium-sized you know small medium-sized lizard that fits the bill to be a really great pet you know right yeah and i think it's good i mean i think they're going to go up in popularity because recently i have notice quite a few people breeding them and even people that haven't heard of them before when they see one especially when they see the males like oh, oh my god this whoa. is amazing yeah so what i'm trying to do here is i'm trying to produce a decent amount so that they could be a more affordable for people um yeah. because that's that's also what you need too because you want it to basically be at a price point you know from a business standpoint where it's worth it for you to breed them obviously mm -hmm. but you also want it to be affordable for like you know the average mom that's going to buy you know, an animal for someone at like a reptile show or something like that, right? You really want that, that sweet, that sweet spot. And yeah, certain right. animals have that, like red tegus have that, uh, lacertas have that. Um, mm -hmm. But Australian water dragons, they're not ridiculously priced, but they're still, you know, out the price point of, of some well. people. So yeah. it's, just, it's just outside of there. But, but yeah, I think they're one of the best species. And, you know, for me, if it goes outside, it's amazing. It goes yeah. <laughs> so exactly. Because we talked about this before, but the biggest thing with um, with uh, a collection of any size is, is really cage maintenance, right? Uh -huh. So I, I don't think it's easy at all to have an outdoor operation. It's actually quite challenging. It, to me, it's way more challenging to set up your initial enclosure and make sure you meet all the parameters where they're literally going to be out by, uh, outside and be fine in the elements, right? Uh -huh. That's a big deal. 
Um, and you have to really be attentive to things, right? In the winter, you have to cover them at certain times. And, you know, in the spring, you have to uncover them. In the summer, they have to have misting systems. So the setup is, is way more intricate. But in terms of regular maintenance, once you have the setup dialed in, you're good to go. So for me, since I like so many different kinds of animals, I can't have a bunch of animals that are super high maintenance in terms of like daily care. Right. Um, right. Because then I have to limit what I have or hire employees. And I have one or two people that help me out. But when it comes to the reptiles, I'm greedy. I'm the one that takes care of the reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> they help me out with the rodents. They help me build things. But maybe here and there, they'll help me with something with reptiles. But if I need help for it, then, then honestly, I don't want it. So mm. that's kind of my mentality with that. So I'm really greedy with that. But, um, but yeah, for outdoor keeping, I mean, we could talk about that for a bit if you guys had questions or whatever questions you guys have. Where do you want to jump well, I was just going to say, ask if you do any um, supplemental heat on any of the outside enclosures. I used to. I actually used to do it for the Australian water dragons. And um, what happened is every year I would say, ah, well, this year they did fine down to 35 without supplemental heat. Let me see if they could take 30. I'm like, okay, they could take it. And I'm like, oh, well, let me see if they could take 25. Oh, they could take it. So then last year when it got down to like 18 degrees when we had a really bad uh, cold front in the middle of yeah. January. I was like, mm-hmm. I think they might be okay. And they were fine. <laughs> um, so currently all my enclosures are set up with supplemental heat. I have little heat pads in there with their hinds, similar to like a lot of outdoor keepers do in Florida. Yeah. But the only, but I don't really use it. The only species that I have supplemental heat for outdoors and I actually utilize it a lot is, uh, my cyclora, my rhino iguanas mm-hmm. because I actually built, um, <clears throat> Basically, it's kind of an indoor-outdoor system. They have a large box. It's an 8 by 4 box that's 4 feet tall. And they go in there every single night during the cool season. And then I have greenhouse plastic over the entire structure in the cold oh. season. Um, so basically, during the daytime here, the average day, and today was considered a cold day, it was 58 degrees and sunny. If you went on, in their enclosure that was covered with greenhouse plastic, they were outside of their hides because in there it was actually quite warm. It was at, at yep. least in the wow. upper 70s, if not higher. And their body temps were extremely high because, you know, they're basically, you know, solar panels, reptiles, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the only ones that really get supplemental heat are my rhino iguanas. But in terms of uh, all the temperate species I have, which would be, uh, I have Shinosaurus outside. I have my Lacertas outside. I have painted Agamas outside. I have Australian water dragons outside. I have at least a dozen species of uh, box turtles and tortoises outside. And um, none of them have supplemental, none, none of them utilize the supplemental heat. I don't plug it in. So, hmm. damn yeah. that's wild man uh, the the shinosaurus to me like i i don't know as much about them so i think of them i don't know in my mind i think about them as a little more tropical so it's interesting that they don't they're, they're tolerant enough to handle that well actually yeah they're actually the most co- uh, cold tolerant species i have out there i actually have to hmm. set them up underneath my hmm. water oak tree because they have to get dappled sun sporadic sun if, if they're in direct sun it's actually extremely stressful for them they could they could die they could overheat really easily so they're the most hmm. cold tolerant animals i have so even in the winter time they're not getting direct sun at any point in time and then i basically have a pot that goes about a foot into the ground and i oh. put a lot of different rocks in there and that's where they go and it stays dry it's covered and they go in there in the winter um and in the winter i don't change out their water i, I don't do anything they they literally don't come out at all i don't see them for for months at a time i do wow. a health check on them Every few weeks initially in the winter, but once we're well into the winter, I only check on them like once a month. If anything, mm-hmm. I honestly think it disturbs them. It's actually negative. I yeah. understand why people right, do it right. because they're paranoid just like <laughs> I am. But 
the more you disturb them in my experience, the more of an issue it winds up being because they're not, they're not used to that. They're not accustomed to that. I mean, there's certain reptiles that do come out during brumation. Like I have rat snakes all the time that are literally basking on my uh, back field all the time. Right. So it really right. depends on the animals. You can't really put a blanket over it, but certain species, at least certain ones I have here don't come out that often in the winter. The exceptions for what I have here would be the painted agamas. Those guys come out. They're very cold tolerant, more cold tolerant than I would expect. And the Australian water dragons. The Australian water dragons, almost daily, they'll come out and they'll be looking for food. I don't feed them in the in the, war, in the cold season, but they're extremely cold tolerant. It's the most cold tolerant lizard I've ever worked with, period. Wow. Besides maybe the Shinosaurus, but I'm talking about in terms of being cold tolerant and being active at cold temperatures, I guess I should say. Yeah. That's fair. It's, it's just crazy because you think Australia and the last thing you think about is cold. <laughs> so yeah, they, they still I do have a winter. They do, but then right, once they, they do. really got into cold, um, cold tolerant species and temperate. When, when you're talking about like Eastern Australia, the further you go south, because they're on the opposite hemisphere, right? Mm-hmm. So usually on this side of the hemisphere, we think south, we think warmer, right? But in Australia, uh, more south is, is colder. You're getting further from the equator. Right. Anyways, but in um, Victoria. And New South Wales area, which is like the southeast portion of Australia, it gets cold. I mean, this portion of Australia that gets snow. Yep. Um, True. So anything, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't like speaking in absolutes, but I think all, many of the species that they have like in New South Wales or further south, mm-hmm. um, I think could live here. And, um, and, and when I say here, I mean in South Carolina, central South Carolina and do well. Assuming that they have a good setup, um, I think honestly that uh, skinkoides, skinkoides, the um, the new uh, the eastern blue tongues could probably do well out here. So, um, I actually was speaking to Ron Saint Pierre about that, and um, and he was giving me some feedback because you know with him he's probably the best outdoor keeper alive currently, right? At least in my uh-huh. opinion. Yeah. Um, and I think that certain uh, species of blue tongues would do well out here too. Uh, the northerns, I would be pretty nervous because they're not as cold tolerant as like eastern blue tongues and alpines mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But I do think that um, the skinkoides, skinkoides, and the and the uh, migratia could could live well out here. Are you guys familiar with blue tongues or? A little bit. I oh, yeah yeah. I, I've I know a little bit about the northerns, and then uh, I really like the westerns, the blotch ones. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I I just think we should do an entire podcast where Josh says skinkoidy, skinkoidy, like a, bu- <laughs> a bunch more times. That's just a fun word. <laughs> yeah, yeah that'll be exciting. Um, but yeah, so for me, with cold tolerance stuff, I mean that's that's really that's really my thing. And then basically, during the um the cold season is when I like I said I work on infrastructure, and then I have most of my varanids are up. Uh, the more warmer species. And then uh, my snakes are up. But nowadays, I don't breed too many snakes. I bred snakes for a long time. I'm saying that. And I actually had a litter of anacondas last week. Oh, damn. Oh, heck yeah, dude. (laughs) And I have another anaconda that um, we were looking at her today. And I was like, I think she's going to drop today. I think she's going to drop today. Um, But yeah, I breed snakes pretty much for fun now. Just because, I mean, I love snakes. I love all species of snakes. I have many species here. Um, but as you guys know, for a long, long time, I was just breeding snakes. So oh, I kind of transitioned over to lizards, uh, in my thirties. So, and that's what I do now. So, um, but yeah, no, I like the winter. It's, it's a nice time to kind of plan things out, get a little bit of a break and everything. So, and I still enjoy the varanids. Honestly, that's when I go really hard at the varanids is in the winter time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because once it's spring, summer, early fall, I'm pretty much have all my attention on my outdoor species and I don't even try to breed or produce any of my indoor animals. And then, um, once the cold season comes, that kind of reverses. So, and we're fortunate here. Like, um, I don't know if you guys had questions about varanids, but did you guys see the Samarantis I posted earlier? The Varanis Samarantis, the Samar no, water. I don't think so. Yeah. So anyway, so I have the Samarantis and we produce the Kamenai here. Those are both Philippine species, the monitors. Um, and then we have, uh, the Salvatore and I have a lot of raise ups for those. And, um, the Mertens, those are the ones I'm actively producing now and Argus eggs. We have quite a few Argus eggs as well. Um, so, I mean, for me with the Varanids, I'm more so trying to get into things that are, that are are challenging for me to breed. That's why I like the Semarentis, for example, to get Mm -hmm. that female to cycle was almost impossible like it took me five years before i get a clutch from that but that's female that i had here and um as you guys know i bred a lot of monitors before it's not as if it was like the first monitor species i bred i right you know with salvatore we had you know a few dozen clutches between different females bred mertens really well uh but the semarentis are a good species they have a high contrasty look similar to like a guru water Mm -hmm. monitor Mm-hmm. And they stay about four feet. The female that um, produces uh, produces for me, she's like a little over three feet, like maybe three and a half feet. Mm-hmm. And um, they climb really, really well, almost like a tree monitor. Like I have all these ladders and different things in their enclosure. They go on the studs, climb straight up with the studs. Damn. So kind of like, uh, do they got the crazy claws like the coming eye? No, it's. It, I, I think it's sharper than the coming eye, actually. Uh, the coming no. eye do have <laughs> sharp claws for sure. Um God. I think it's definitely uh, sharper than the common eye. Um, and I think their temperament also with the babies I have, they're, they're really placid temperaments, which is surprising mm-hmm. because, you know, the first time we produced them uh, last year or the year before was the first time they were produced in the U S and now it's like uh, the third time. This is my third clutch I've produced here. And the babies are actually pretty placid because for common eye, for example, we haven't been breeding them that long in this country. And mm-hmm. a lot of common eyes, kind of start out pretty spastic they're kind of jumping yeah. all over the place they remind yeah. me of baby rhino iguanas like baby rhino mm-hmm. iguanas are nuts usually yes. right? <laughs> yeah um and then but usually after a few weeks once you work with the common eye for a month or two they're just as placid as a salvatore but mm. i mean in terms of being like a calm animal salvatore for varanids is, is tough to beat um yeah. Yeah, they've been yeah. bred for many generations and i mean nowadays if you produce uh salvatore you know, nine times out of 10, it's extremely plastic. You almost have to do something to make it temperamental. Right. Yeah. Right. But, um, I mean, I mean, so hence why there's a lot of people, you know, working with Salvatore and I love Salvatore. We have a decent amount here and I produce them. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, do something that's a little bit less represented and stuff. So. Hell yeah. And also and, just easier to, easier to maintain. Right. As, as you were saying before, like, you know, Salvatore are great, but you get some, massive adults and it's like not too many people are are keen on that yeah the big thing for me i mean i love salvatore we've had salvatore when i was really young uh we got our first salvatore i was like seven or eight years old when my family got their first salvatore so we've we've i've had them for a really long time so they're i really love salvatore but to be perfectly honest with you they do get pretty large and they're extremely you know in my opinion they're pretty straightforward to breed right and that combination, it's kind of like almost like a, like a retic, right? Retics are great animals. I love retics, right? But they get very large and they're pretty straightforward to breed, right? Oh. So for me, usually if the, the larger the snake and the larger the lizard, the less of it I want to produce. So because we could produce way more here. Uh, I could produce, you know, 
you know, triple or, or you know, quite a, quite a bit more than, uh, than we produce a Salvatore. But they're great animals. But for me, if it's, if it's bigger, I produce less of them. So Yeah. yeah. And I didn't want to skip over congratulating you on the Samarensis because that's like, that's huge, man. Yeah. 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 No, I'd have to do a, I appreciate it. I'm going to have to do another post about it because I basically did a post. I had a black dragon, a coral albino, which yeah, is the, 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 the right. So I'm going to do another post about it. I stopped posting them because every time I would post to people like, Oh, are you going to sell them? Are you going to sell them? And mm-hmm. I wanted to keep them. So, yes. Right. Right. <laughs> so, but now this clutch, I'm actually willing to part with some because I have a decent amount of them. Um, mm-hmm. So now that I feel, you know, pretty comfortable with the amount I have, I'm parting with some. So that's why I started posting them little by little. So yeah, dude, that's freaking awesome. But I like people seeing have success with um, being successful with things that were formerly thought as being pretty difficult. These croc monitors, there was like in the last, like what year and a half, there's been like five different people that's produced croc monitors in the U S. Yeah. So, so that's good. I like when people basically crack codes on, you know, different types of animals. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, and John and Dragon, yeah. they produce some Spencers. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Yes, Johnny boy. Right, Johnny. Johnny, the Varanus coming on. The Varanus coming on are really amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. Yeah, and the polymorphism with the Varanus coming on, you could have high white animals, high yellow animals, you could have banded animals, you have darker animals. So um, I really like their look. Um, and they, they, you know, they produce well, but they're not as straightforward as a Salvatore, which is also good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they start to get down to a more manageable, manageable size. Because my males are maybe five feet. They could get bigger. I've seen, like, monster come and I, but a normally fed, like, um, animal that's fed to be healthy. Like, five feet for a male and, like, four feet for a female. That's pretty average. But they, mm-hmm. they could get bigger than that. But it's not just their length and also also their width. They're not as bulky as like a Salvatore. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they're maybe half as bulky as your average Salvatore. So it, it, just, it starts becoming a more manageable size. And they're super intelligent. Um, so that, to me, even though they're becoming more popular, I think that's an extremely underrated species. Yeah. Heck yeah. And, and um, so like which – I know that you'd posted like uh, you posted like a high white animal, right? Or one that was going heading that way. Yeah. I've, I've posted the, the whiteouts in the past. So, I, yeah. um, so what I posted today was actually the Semarensis. I didn't post the common eye, but um, the, the common eye that I work with are the ones uh, that are termed as whiteouts. They're um, I believe they come from a, like a German zoo and then they were brought into the U S mm-hmm. and they were bred here. Uh, John Adragna had worked with them. And that's the ones I really focus on, the high white ones. But they do have other ones. They have banded ones. They have ones with high black. They have ones that are more masked. Um, they have all different kinds of looks. So, Yeah, that's. I was just scrolling through. I was like, oh, man, that thing's freaking wild. And then I didn't know if you were – if that's, like, your point of focus or whether you were working with some of the other ones too. I do work with some of the other ones, but I really do focus on the high white ones. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. that's really my focus uh, with now with those guys. Um I would like to work with some banded ones, but but they're hard to come across the banded ones because they, you know these are different locales and it's it's kind of similar to almost like like carpet pythons, right? A lot of the carpet pythons we have here, we think they come from such and such region, but then when you actually see like field reports from of people there, that yeah. see them in the wild, you be like, well, coastal, well, coastal doesn't look like that, and we're almost dictating yeah. to them what they should look like, but they're seeing it in the wild in situ, right? Yeah, yeah. So. That's that how is it's almost with the common eye. They'll they'll post all uh, um all over, and then you see they have totally different looks from all over. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm trying to get as many looks as possible, but you know, I have to have some level of focus, right? So I yeah. focus on what I like the most, which is the the whiteouts. So Heck hell yeah. I I absolutely love when people keepers in the US try to tell the folks <laughs> that see the animals in the wild that are around the animals in the wild how those animals should behave, how they should look, everything. It's like you realize like they've probably seen like a hundred of them in the last month. You know, is probably you know, just stop talking. You know, when I started realizing that, I started realizing that because I started, oh, I have brettles outside. I don't think I told you guys that. I have brettles and I have diamonds outside. Oh, I remember so you were I talking have, about um, planning doing that, but I didn't know you had, you had got them out there. No, they went out this, they went out this season. So I have I, them over yeah. by my, the, the field where the, where the tegu pens are. Yeah. I'll show you next time you hear. Anyway, so yeah. I have um, some of the, like the hypo stone washes and the hypo uh, headstone washes and stuff. That's what I have for the raise up brettles. And they're doing really well outside. Um, but so I started looking into it when I was starting, when I started getting all my brettles and getting my diamonds and I started looking into all that data with, um, other you know, Python species there. And I would see that. And I thought it was pretty funny. Like, well, coastal is not supposed to look like that. And I was like, well, how are you dictating to them? They're looking at it in their yard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. I, I feel like that's, that's an element, especially when it comes to Morelia, uh, now like when we see like a coastal or a jungle like we're we're used to seeing them now however many generations captive bred more often than not coming from some kind of line where there's a focus to get it as yellow as possible or as contrasted as possible and then you see somebody in a morelia group post the one they see in their yard and they're like that can't be one of these they're supposed to look like this opens up cage and like pulls out fat slobby morelia <laughs> It's just like, uh, not quite, buddy. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, there was a question actually that um someone had asked me if I don't know if you guys want to address this because someone had asked me earlier when they saw your guys' notes about the the podcast. Well, how do you do you know so many different species and what works yeah. well for you? Kind of like one all encompassing mm. tip. I mean, is mm. that something you guys wanted to cover? Or? Yes, absolutely, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent, dude. Okay, so I told him, I was like, yeah, I'll cover it during the podcast. You know, I'll just tell it from my perspective. With me, I try to get animals that where I could kind of streamline their care. So if you see with the Varanids, I do have some exceptions like the Lace and Spencers. But I basically have animals where their care is similar. It would almost be the equivalent of um, like in the pythons, for example. If I had like Python Curtis, so if I had um, Python Curtis and Bronger's Mai, and I had Brettstein, I had like different short tail and blood pythons, right? Mm-hmm. They all get similar care, right? You can have those animals one record and similar care. That's what I try to do here, but with lizards, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I feel a lot of times like we've bred snakes so long, and we have such really good systems for snakes. And I, and I feel with lizards, that's not necessarily the case, at least not to that extent, right? And that's what I'm trying to do here. Um, because I said, you know what? I really want to do what a lot of the snake guys do, but do it with lizards, right? Yeah. So I try to streamline it. I streamline it with my varanids. I streamline my processes with my outdoor animals to as much as possible. Some of them get slightly different diets, but usually if there's a species that has totally different care requirements, totally different diet, totally different temperature parameters, and it's just way different than what I have here, I'm probably not going to work with it, even if it's pretty yeah. cool. Um, because I need to streamline things here so that it's, it's more uniform. So that, that yeah. works well with me trying to get animals that have at least similar care requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, that works well. And uh, the second thing for me is just basically being attentive because I take notes on like 
everything. Like I like anally right. take notes of if an animal is basking more, if an animal is eating more ravenously, if an animal's going off feed, I take notes in my phone and I have them more organized because it's I'm basically just observing, right? Mm-hmm. Um so then when I see a change, it's more likely that I could react to it, whether change is positive or negative. Okay, this is not working out for this animal. Um, it's not eating as well and it's not cycling or anything. It's just the, the, the body weight's going down, the condition's going down. Um, or conversely, if it's going really well and the animal's starting to cycle, right? Because I, I don't want to basically have a positive outcome and then have no idea how I got there. How you got right? there, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, it's not... It's not a perfect science, so but basically I try to observe as much as possible. I think the reasoning for that is, um, I mean, I don't want to date myself because I feel like I'm still pretty young. But, you know, back when I first started with reptiles when I was really young with, with my family, I mean, they didn't have the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And the library, you could, you could get a book that was, you know, maybe written 30 years prior, right? Mm-hmm, I didn't right. live around a lot of reptile people, right? Um, because I lived in New York City. So basically the animals we had, we had to be really meticulous and observe them, right? We had to be like anally observe them and every little nuance that changed, we had to record and we had to see, you know, what was happening, right? We really had to pay attention to that. And I'm not saying that you can't get them nowadays, but I think people a lot of times complain about the resources that they didn't have back then, but I'm actually kind of grateful for it because then mm-hmm. back then I was, I was forced to really observe these animals. And now that I have these resources, you have all these resources, but you still you know, really pay attention to like little nuances and things. So, um, yeah. So I guess that's what works for me is, um, I mean, one, trying my best to streamline things within reason. I do have exceptions like Cyclora, Lace Monitor, Spencers, but I try to streamline it within reason. Uh, two, I just really just try to pay attention. And three, I think, I think I accept, I accept the truth that as much as we think we know and as much as we think we're experts, I don't think any of us are experts. Yep. Not even close. That's true. That's my opinion. <laughs> I think true. some of us are just more experienced than others. And then once for me, once I accepted that, I'm like, you know what? You don't know anything. You don't know anything. You're just observing these animals and you're doing your best. And you may be more experienced than the next person. Um, but I think in the big scheme of things, the amount of information we have now about these animals is, is, is pretty insignificant. I think, you know, 10 years from now, it looks totally different. 20 years from now, it looks totally different. I mean, right. our industry in general it's kind of in its infancy, which I think honestly is really exciting, right? Yes. Because we have so yeah. much room to learn, so much, you know, room to streamline things. So, so it makes it so interesting, the future, because we're in, we're in the beginning. We're kind of like pioneers in this. I mean, there's people that yeah. came, you know, before us, like, you know, like Kevin's generation and generations before that. But I think we're still in the beginning. So uh, I think it's a really exciting time to be into reptiles. So. Hell yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and I think we're, we're seeing what, what that next wave really looks like as it, as it comes over into, into reptiles, like snakes and lizards and stuff. Uh, Cause if you think about like a lot of amphibian keepers, like I remember as a kid, like going to a place like black jungle terrarium supply, you walk in there and everything's in a living terrarium planted out, like, well, oh, it looks freaking amazing. And you know, you're like, well, it's a slice of the jungle, you know, but, but most, most reptile folks with, you know, a few exceptions here and there, we're still kind of keeping on the more minimalistic side, you know, just kind of like, oh, it's, it's got a fake plant and a branch and a water bowl. So I'm doing okay. You know, and now we're slowly seeing it, you know, bleed over now where it's like, oh, I decked out this amazing enclosure. You know, I, I figured out how to put pieces of wood together and, and, and foam (laughs) and I made a, a rock and now it looks really cool, you know, but we're starting to see that kind of bleed over. So I, I agree. I think it's, it's really, 
now is a really exciting time to be invested in reptiles and, and learning about keeping and husbandry. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I have some, I guess, controversial thoughts with that, but, but in, in terms of the positive, I do think a lot of the, the keepers that are coming in are really looking at it from like a different perspective. A lot mm-hmm. of them are saying, you know, I want this larger enclosure, especially if it's your pet. I can understand if it's a breeding facility, right. you really need to have things um, as streamlined as possible so you can notice when things are going wrong, right? So you have to have yeah. sometimes things a bit more simplistic, right? Especially if it's indoors, right? Where you don't have the help of mother nature outside. But nowadays, when people uh, have smaller collections and they're hobbyists or even small time breeders, a lot of them are going for uh, larger enclosures, um, even for their snakes. That, I got really excited with seeing people having their snakes in like monitor size enclosures, you mm-hmm. know, because I'm old school. So, yeah. you know, we, we put stuff in racks and smaller enclosures, which I have now. I'm not knocking it at all. I think they absolutely have their purpose. But I think in some instances, you know, nice, large, you know, display style enclosures are, I mean, they're great for you. They're more enjoyable for the keeper. And, you know, they're also more enjoyable for the, for the animals themselves, right. In terms of like, uh, you know, just their, not just their production, but their overall husbandry and health. So I like mm-hmm. seeing that, that people are thinking of, of things differently. And for me, since I keep like keeping things outdoors, I'm really pumped about people keeping things outdoors. All these blue tongue breeders that are like, you know what, we're putting all these goddamn things outside. <laughs> I'm not having 50 racks in my house. I'm not doing this anymore. I want right. to have a bedroom. I'm putting these things outside. <laughs> uh, well, you can't do that everywhere, of course. Like in Florida, you can right. do that, especially South Florida. You can do it in Central Florida. Ron's doing it. And I mm-hmm. honestly think that's a large part of it because um, people see Ron doing it and it makes it more tangible, right? Mm-hmm, so, right. And he's always been a pioneer with stuff like that, especially outdoor keeping. But when they see someone that's respected saying, well, you know what? I mean, it's great having them in racks. There's nothing against that. You've done great with them in racks. But, you know, there's another alternative. Maybe you'll like doing this. And I've seen at least like four or five different keepers in Florida start keeping them outside. I want to be, you know, the person to start doing basically that, but do it in the Carolinas. So. Hell yeah. Heck yeah, dude. I'm here for it. Yeah, but that's really exciting. I mean, there's, there's tons of things I'm excited about. Um yeah, so that's that's so that's in terms of like when people ask me like, oh, you work with you know so many different species. To me, it doesn't seem like that many species, to be perfectly honest with mm-hmm. you. But I think from an outsider's perspective, maybe it seems like that. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what works for me. Um, and I think it's also just you know just finding your system, just finding what you're good at and what works for you, what you get good results at, and be open to other ideas if you have to modify that. And don't like right. blindly follow someone's plan because if I did. Like Kevin's a great breeder, Kevin McCurley. If I did what he did here, I would do poorly because it just uh-huh. doesn't, you know, fit my personality type. And there's a lot right. of good breeders, even like Ron and all these amazing, amazing breeders. But if I blindly followed anyone's system, uh, I, I think it wouldn't necessarily work out well for me because we all have different personalities, different styles, uh-huh. uh, different lifestyles, not just styles of keeping reptiles. So I think basically I, I just try to absorb as much information as possible from all these different avenues. And then I figure out, well, what's going to work best for me and the animals and what do I think would uh, have the best results? And then if it blows up in my face, then I have to change it. So Yeah. I remember before you moved uh, and you're like trying to think of like what other species you're going to get into. You're like, okay, well, I know that these things work in this kind of uh, temperature parameters. What kind of things do you think will also fit into that kind of similar parameters so I don't have to change a whole lot with the way that I'm keeping but I can expand and grow into different species. I remember talking to you a bunch about a different species. Like we were talking about the Shinosaurus and, and some of those other species too. 
Oh yeah, no, definitely. And honestly, I kind of, I think I really underestimated, uh, you know, the species that you could do here. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and I, and I shouldn't have really, because we have like the perfect example, Bert Langerwerf, right? Look yeah. at all the species he worked with and some species that people never thought you could do outdoors. For example, red tegus, we have red tegus here, right? Yeah. No one would, anything, anyone that actually knows about red tegus would never think you could breed them outdoors in Alabama ever. Right. Uh-huh. But he had specially designed terraria where his microclimates were you know, quite different from his surrounding area. Um, uh-huh. I don't have my t- red tegus out all year. Um, I actually have them brewmating. I showed you guys all the bins in my guest bedroom. <laughs> yeah. right? It's a it was a lot of animals, guys. <laughs> yeah. I do make them in bins uh here um just because that's what works out best for me because he basically had like cement basements, right? He be- uh-huh. he basically built a cement structure that was partially in the ground and then he had glass tops for them. So he he basically made it like a well-insulated basement. And where I live here, I have – you saw all the ponds and the swamps and stuff we have, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. So I, I have the enclosures on the driest southern exposed area on my property. But even that's really not dry enough because, as you guys know, cold isn't great for most reptiles, right? Yeah. Um, being wet isn't great for most reptiles you know, with, with, with excessive wetness. You know what's yep. really bad? Being cold and wet. The cold. I don't like yeah. it. <laughs> but the reptiles really don't like it. So yeah. that's the reason I really don't have my red tegus outside. It's just too humid here. And um, it's a it's a too cold for too long. There was too many obstacles for me to really overcome. Um, so basically, I uh, I emulate what they would do in the wild. They go down to a burrow. And they, for the most part, stay there You know, the entire cold season. So mm-hmm. once I let them start brumation outside. Um, they start brumation, they, they brumate for about two months outside. And once we start getting to the danger zone in terms of temperatures for them outdoors, I place them indoors in bins with wheat straw, and then I put them, um, back out in the spring. So that's the system that works well for me. I've been doing it for quite a few years here, but red tegus are, are not easy to do in South Carolina at all. Um, oh, it's yeah. too, it's, it's, uh, too humid, a little too cold. And it's not just that it's too cold. The cold season lasts too long. Because oh, naturally, where this species is from, the Salvatore rufescens, it's not cold for quite this long. So they're waking up when it's um like mid February, like Valentine's Day. They're waking up, but it's too cold to put them outdoors. Yeah. So I mean, it's a challenge, and I and I like that challenge. Um, but if you think in terms of the the positive note with that, that helps out with like regulations, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't have to worry about well, right. they're going to say well, red tegus can live in this state. Well, I intentionally try to do it here, and I can't mm-hmm. do it, and I'm. I'm pretty experienced, obviously. So, um, so that helps out. I'm not really worried about Salvatore Refrescens ever getting regulated here because uh, it would be pretty illogical. So, yeah. So, if you have them uh, waking up early, how do you like combat that? Or do you do you have a a trigger line where you're like, okay, we had eight days that were above this temperature, they're going outside, or or how do you run that? springtime for me once the temperatures out so when they go outside is once the the overnight temperatures are consistently in like around 44 or higher so like Mm. upper 40s that's when i could put them outside but uh for the for the tegus i have here i have some pure argentine tegus where a more it's a more southern form so it's further from the equator they're a little bit more cold tolerant so sometimes i get away with putting them straight outside but all my Paraguayan and Paraguayan Argentine crosses, I have to set them up indoors usually for about six weeks 
So basically the beginning portion of when they wake up, they're awake indoors and then they go outside. And this usually winds up happening like late March, early April, something like mm-hmm. that. So, and uh, I pretty much streamlined their process. I do you know something pretty different here. I don't, I don't separate the animals. Um, I basically separate all my whole, all my whole colony gets separated on the same day. I don't know anyone that really does that. They wait for the females to look gravid and this and that. I've never really done that because if you miss a female, the, uh, a clutch can get eaten. Or if a female's too far along her cycle, <laughs> she'll fight with the male. Uh-huh. Basically, I know from looking at my records, right, that my females almost always start laying the very end of May. They lay all June and then the, like the first week of July. So you know what I do? June 1st, I separate all of them. All yep. of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we have really good success here. So they they basically stay together the early portion of the spring. Uh, they breed like crazy in May, and you could see it. The males lose interest once it hits like May twentieth, twenty first. I hardly have any males courting here, um, and I start seeing some gravid females towards the very very end of May. They might start laying, and June first, unless I see them, they're they're obviously going to lay earlier than that. I separate all of them, so that oh, I try to just streamline it like that and notice patterns like that. I mean, even with the varanids. Um, I don't want to jump around too much. A lot of times people will keep Varanids together for a long period of time. Once my Varanids lock once and I know she's cycling, I never put them together ever again. And oh, I get a clutch. So I, I think some of my systems that I have here are, are pretty different. And, uh, you know, I'm always experimenting. Some of my systems work out great and some of my systems I think they're going to be great and they're not. And I have to modify them. So. <laughs> I mean, that's also a testament to, to, keeping the records that you do and paying attention to everything that you do. Cause I feel like <clears throat> one of the things that we've heard a lot on some of the more recent episodes that we've been doing is like people just talking about like paying attention to their animals, like watching their animals being just more meticulous overall about paying attention to those animals. So when you're talking about a larger scale operation, like that comes into play so much more because ex- exactly as you're saying, like you, you know, your window for production and you know, okay, well, I could go through and pull this animal then and do this here and do that there. But I've looked at everything. I've got the records of everything and know, like, eh, if I just do this in one foul swoop, I'll pretty much be good to go. And to be able to have it go from thought process to proven is just a testament to what record keeping can really do. Yeah, I mean, and that's what works well for me. I mean, I've I've seen people that have, you know, techniques that they're really – really uh feel strong about that work well for them but for me keeping it organized is uh that's what works well for me and keeps all the animals here and you know nice and healthy but with the red tegus i don't want to go off on tangent but did you guys see that melanistic red bro i was gonna ask you about that (laughs) yeah that's cool right that is really cool (laughs) so the reason I was mentioning that since we started talking about red tegus, I was like, I should probably tell them about the different looks we're going for here. Yes. So as you guys know, we can't breed Salvatore Marinet in this state, right? I'm not going to get mm. into that, but that's black and white tegus and blue tegus. So I basically said, if I have to do red tegus, right, I'm going to go all out. And I really want as much variety as humanly possible. I want the coolest red tegus in the world. Oh. Um, so we have a lot of different projects here. I actually have a hypo melanistic animal. Um, yes. I purchased a project for someone else. And, um, that seems to be heritable. I produced a baby. I haven't posted it yet. Maybe after this podcast, I'll wind up posting it. Um, but it seems to be like a heritable project. I haven't gone out and formally said that yet because I don't know 100%, but I purchased these animals 
and the original owner that imported them from directly from Argentina, um, he imported a special animal that was termed hypo. They also called it ghost at one point and they called it pastel. I believe it was named. And um, he produced from it. He let one animal go early to a, to a breeder that passed away named Eric Sikowski and a bunch of possets are kind of, the reason I'm mentioning that a bunch of possets are floating in the industry, but I mm. have what we believe are hundred percent hats here, assuming that it is simple recessive. And I bred those together yeah. this past year and have animals that I produce that are honestly unlike anything I've ever seen. But I basically want to make sure it's heritable before I go forward and say, you know what? It's not a feeling. This is, this is 100% correct. So yeah. we have that. And then we kind of have the opposite of that. We have a hyper melanistic animal. So I yes. love dude. That thing I was hyped when I saw that. It was so strange. It's actually a pretty cool story because sometimes you get weird things that happen in clutches. If babies hatch out too early or too late, yeah. temperatures yeah. are too high or too low. It could be artifact of incubation. So I had this baby come out that was black and literally like blue, like mm-hmm. you know, as blue as the sky, right? Like an aqua blue almost. And I was like, Well, that's weird. And then I had another one out of the same box. Well, that's kind of weird. And then I I always, because I worked in, as you guys know, as a researcher for many years, worked in labs, right? So I I implement some of those systems here. So I have a second incubator. I always put things in two incubators to have a redundancy. Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. same clutch, I had two boxes in a totally different incubator. So out of a different incubator, they started hatching out a few days later. Then I got these black babies that had aqua all over them. I'm like, (laughs) well, that's really weird. weird. (laughs) And and it was the exact opposite of what I expected because I bred high white animals, right? I had ran animals that had a ton of white on them and they had patterns that were very unique because obviously I stare all day at a lot of red tegus, you know, for certain times of the year. The patterns looked really unique, but similar to one another. Mm-hmm. And they, they were high white. There was some pure Argentine tegus I had gotten. And I was like, well, let me breed them together because I really want to, you know, extend that look because it looks so cool. I just want a really high white animal with that unique pattern. And I'm over here expecting these nice high white tegus to come out or something <laughs> that's going to turn into high white. I'm like, well, that's kind of the, the exact opposite of what I expected. That is not <laughs> what I was expecting. <laughs> so, and we produced um, approximately a quarter of the clutch. It was a seven out of Seven out of 27 babies, I want to say. Damn. I have to double check my yeah. records. It was almost exactly a quarter of the clutch that was melanistic. Um, and they have varying degrees of, of hypermelanism. The, the females seem to be quite a bit darker. And the males are dark and they have like reddish bellies and like reddish hues coming in on the top. Uh, oh, time will tell man. if they stay that way when they're full grown adults. Um, mm-hmm. But regardless, they're very unique. And um, even if they're not fully black as adults, they're definitely going to be darker than your typical tegu because they already have good size to them. Um, so I'm really excited about that. So what did you guys yeah, think when we saw them? Dude, I was like, hold on. Maybe I was like, maybe this is lighting. And then the, the video changed a little bit. I was like, oh, man, those things are freaking wild, Dude, man. They're, they're nuts. They're so cool looking. They're and freaking then, nuts. So yes. roughly how big are they now? Um, they're about the biggest one I have because they slow down in the winter, even though I try yeah. to keep them up. Sometimes mother nature, you know, that takes the best of the situation. I want to say the biggest one I have now is about two feet long or close to two feet, like 22 inches long. Heck yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
But for me, I mean, their appetites, even though I keep the babies indoors and I keep them really warm, I mean, they know they cue into temperature drops, just like snakes, just like, you know, all these other animals, right? They know far better than we do. Um, So their appetite decreases quite a bit in the winter. So they eat enough to stay healthy, but they don't grow that much in the winter for me, at least. Maybe Mm -hmm, you can speak to someone else and someone else tells you that all their tegus grow a lot in the winter. With me, most of my tegus, the babies that I keep up for the winter, I would say at least half of them slow down quite a bit in growth. Yeah. Um, but they have good size to them. And then um, we have a red albino coming in now, a pure red albino. Yeah. Uh, over in the farm in Ganuelas, Argentina. And that project went to someone in Florida. And then he loaned that project out to someone else. And they were very successful with it. And now a, a couple breeders in the, or a few breeders in the U.S. have them. Anyways, so we have a red albino coming in literally as soon as temperatures are warm enough to ship. Yes. Heck yeah, dude. I have a That's super cleaner. exciting. I have. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> so we have the hypo melanistic looking one. I'm not saying it's definitely heritable. I'm not saying it's definitely anything, but it appears hypo melanistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I have what appears to be the hyper melanistics. The, so the, the, the black ones, we have albinos coming in. I have one that so far I'm terming Aztec that kind of has like a, I might rename it labyrinth. But it almost reminds me of like a labyrinth Burmese python. Uh-huh. And I bred those together. And then a, a good portion of the babies wound up having that. I have a feeling that's mostly, that's probably polygenetic. Polygenic, yeah. Polygenic. But um, time will tell. Mm. So um, Heck yeah, dude. we have a lot of different looks. I have high whites um, that are not the ones that produce the melanistic, just regular high whites. I have deep reds. That are, I have some burgundy looking animals. I actually have the male. Um, his name is Ron Burgundy. Yes. And, <laughs> and he literally looks Burgundy. And I bred him to some females and they weren't quite as, as uh, Burgundy as him, but they did have a similar look. I mean, I have at least 10 different distinct looks here on the farm that I'm working with that I've been able to reproduce. I'm not saying all of them follow Mendelian genetics are going to be uh-huh. simple recessive or incomplete dominant. I'm not, I'm not claiming that at all. I'm actually right. quite confident that some of them aren't, that a lot of them are um are polygenic but we're trying to go for as many looks as possible i want to you know really hone in on that and we're really happy with the results and and red tegus make amazing pets and uh for me with with larger or large-ish lizards you usually don't hear me say that that pets for everyone but i really think an argentine tegu um, is an excellent pet even for like families or anything like that i mean they're, they're really cold tolerant they're heat tolerant. They have varied diets. They're very, very placid. Um, I know people that set them up in enclosures in their home where they kind of have enclosures they can walk into and then they roam the home, you know, supervised. So I th- I do think that's one of the few exceptions where it's a, it's a sizable lizard, but it's a really good pet for almost anyone. So, yeah, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, dude. When that, when those hyper melanistics hatch out, you just say the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> you know, I thought of you when I produced that one. The first one I was name Rob. Yes. <laughs> it's weird that it um, ended up being a girl, but. <laughs> oh, man. I was, you were glitching out a little bit. Hopefully you guys could hear me, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. clear. <laughs> cool. So we have the anneries here too. So um, I'm not sure if you guys Ooh. saw the annery. The anneries, I'm going for a bunch of different looks too. I have um, some really high white anneries um, that, um, and then I have some really dark anneries and they're pure red tegus as well. 
And then I have some that almost have a like a zebra type look to them where they have like really dark bands with the rest of the bodies white. So we're trying to because that anery mutation, you guys are familiar with anery tegus before I anery red tegus yeah. before yeah, I keep on. Them. Yeah. Yeah. So the good thing with that is is that when you have a red tegu, especially in the males and with certain females, that red coloration is, is pretty dominant on the animal. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, especially in males, it's it's pretty challenging to see what, what's underneath, to see that pattern, right? To see the yep. different nuances and pattern. Once you remove that red pigmentation in the anaries, it kind of gives you more to work with aesthetically. You could have hmm. a lot of different pattern looks and a lot of different contrast looks. Um, it basically um, kind of opens your eyes to the possibilities when you have an anatheristic tegu in terms of pattern and color and shades. So we're really trying to get a lot of different looks for the anaries as well here. So, um, yeah, so that's we're really excited about that too. And there's, there's tons of other looks that we have here for the red tegus. Um, that's just literally off the top of my head. Dude, that is so fucking Dude. awesome. <laughs> it's super exciting. It's super exciting because for so many people are just like, ah, oh, it's a red tegu. So to, to see like all these all these different, first of all, potential polygenic and Mendelian genetic traits popping up in this species and like being able to find those little nuances, like it opens up a whole new potential for not just you as the breeder, but also for clientele, right? Like if you got that look that somebody's just like, that's what I've been looking for, you know, like that's, that's great. You know, we got, we got, I mean, I, I got pretty fortunate in terms of red tegus because if I had to choose one species that I, I, I had to work with in terms of tegus here, if someone said you have to pick one, no other ones, it would be red tegus. Um, mm-hmm. They tend to be the most placid. They're the calmest of the tegus, in my opinion. I've worked with all of them. Um, and then you know, pretty much all the morphs besides albinos and uh, blue tegus exist in red tegus because you have the albinos you have the anaries you have you know what people are calling hypo hopefully this hypermelanistic thing that's going on mm-hmm. um so all the morphs are really with with the red tegus i mean i i mean you do have some for example the albino with blue tegus um but by and large they have the most variety um mm-hmm. And in addition to that, they have the best temperaments. Even if you speak to an over in Canuelas, Argentina, where they have a, a tegu farm, where they have a few different types of tegus, all the workers on that farm, they all say they prefer to work with the red tegus because they're calmer. Uh-huh. So, yeah, no, it's, awesome. it's a great pet. I'm really excited about it. Heck yeah, dude. Th- that's really cool. And I, I don't follow the tegu like world as closely, but I feel like, there is not as much work being done even in the venue of um black and whites as far as the the patterning and the, the stuff that you're picking out and choosing to 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 run with i feel like i just don't see that with the black and whites you know yeah no i i agree i mean i think it's something that um people haven't taken advantage of of yet um and what honestly what i also like about the situation is it's basically making the best out of a situation because it was honestly, I feel a blessing in disguise that I was kind of forced to work only with Salvatore Professions because I don't feel like I would have been so tuned into these different looks mm-hmm. if I had so many different types of tegus here. It really yeah. forced me to really specialize in the reds and specialize in the different looks. So now we do have all this variety here. And if I was allowed to have, you know, the blue tegus and the black and white tegus and all the hybrids, maybe that wouldn't have happened. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think that, um, 
I mean, I mean, black and white tegus are great. Blue tegus are great. I, I love blue tegus very much. Um, but you know, red tegus is what I'm excited about, man. Dude, hell Heck yeah, dude. <laughs> Heck yeah. All right, so we are running low on time. We're hitting just past that hour mark. So we're going to wrap up with our final question that we ask on every episode, and it's going to catch you completely off guard. Are you ready? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What in the realm of reptiles, be it something that you're working with or something that you've seen online, what is something that's got you really hyped up about reptiles right now? Something got you excited? Uh, for me, it's people keeping more outdoors. I mean, that's no big surprise. Like I was telling you guys before, like when I see all these people, like I see some people putting diamonds and brettles outside and putting all these yep. blue tongues outside mm-hmm. and having indoor outdoor runs and doing all this stuff outdoors. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's all just put them all outside. I mean, <laughs> you can't always do it depending on where you live. But if you live somewhere right. where it's an option, at least for part of the year, do it. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And uh, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, if they want to see some of the pictures or videos of the stuff that you're working with, where should they follow you? I mean, pretty much everything I have is under my name, Josh Ortiz. Um, so where I'm from, that's a pretty common name. So I usually put Herbert Safana by Josh Ortiz, like in my Facebook profile. And um, if they look up Herbert Safana, if they just do a general search on like Instagram or any of the social media platforms, I, I pretty much have all of them, at least to my knowledge, all the popular ones, at least. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah! I, I don't. I haven't seen you do any TikTok dances, Josh. Oh, I will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> You're gonna regret those words. <laughs> oh God, Josh! Please delete your TikTok. Please, please. please stop the TikToks. <laughs> this is too much. <laughs> and you can't, you can't de- delete me or block me. I'll just get a different username. Oh no! You. you just oh, make it worse for yourself. You may as well it's just, just whatever I send you. It's just gonna be dances with goose. <laughs> I'll have Dan over here. I'll have Dan do the dancing with me. We'll both send it to you. Oh, He'll do, no, the Dan will do the truffle shuffle, shuffle baby. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be pretty epic. <laughs> well, it's gonna be my next phone call with Dan. Be like, dude, you're going to South. Tell Lena you're going to South Carolina to do the truffle shuffle, man. <laughs> That'll be awesome. Oh We're going to do YouTube God. soon, too. So I should mention that. I have a YouTube channel. Mm. Like, I think I have like one video posted like years ago. But we're going to start hard at it. Maybe for like the inaugural episode, I'll get you guys down here. And we'll take a look at everything. Yeah, that would be so dope, dude. And we could herp when you come down. I know a good timber spot. I know a good spot for lots of alligators. And it's only yes. like 30 minutes from my house. So yeah. I just got a new position at work uh, in October. So now I have pretty much every weekend off. So, and I can kind of take time when I need it. So I have much more open schedule now so I can actually come down and visit. Cool. Let's do it. Let's do it in the spring. We could do like a YouTube yeah. thing where we show all the animals, blah, blah, blah. And then we'll do like a herping thing. And I know all the good spots because I got skunked plenty of times. So I've, been able to, <laughs> I've been able to hold it down. I know a spot where literally if it's reasonably warm out, we'll see alligators. I don't Now that I say this, it's not going to happen. But every time we're <laughs> right, right. the alligators, every single time. And I'm talking about, like, monsters. So Damn. I, I, it's 30 minutes from my house. I can show you guys the spot. I've seen babies out in the wild. I've seen all kinds of stuff. I'll show you guys the spot. You guys will really enjoy it. Dude, hell yeah. Hell yeah, dude. Josh, thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, it's been dude. good catching up. I love you. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Love you. Bye. Yes, you, we'll dude. catch you. Have a good night. You too.